Amen. Amen. Would you guys give it up for our worship team this morning? They did a great job. So glad to have a team of dedicated people, uh, not just here, but also up in that sound booth. Uh, Would you guys give it up for our tech people? You, you typically don't realize that they are there until they mess up, and so um, it's good to, to be thankful for those, uh, that, that whole uh, worship team. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask with you uh, to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, continuing on in this series that we've been in for a little over three months in the book of Acts, and in case you have forgotten or you're joining us for the first time, the book of Acts tells uh, the, the amazing story of, a, of how a group of ordinary people, right, blue-collar workers, tax collectors, women, how they started the largest religious movement in history. And the story is really quite remarkable if you study it out and you look at it. I mean, never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. And then Jesus, after the resurrection, he gathers his ragtag band of disciples and apostles together on the side of a mountain, and he says to them, okay, your job is to spread the gospel and make disciples for me in every single country in the world. And then he just ascends to heaven. It's just over. Jesus is gone. And you have to stop and think about what that must have been like for that group of people. Jesus is there, and then he's just gone. Now, eventually one of the disciples says, like, what in the world? Does does Jesus even know how large the world is? Every nation? Every single country? And the answer is yes. Obviously, Jesus knew how big the world was. And like I said, never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. But then that begs the question, how on earth did they accomplish the task? How? And and they really did so by two different things. God, God does two specific things. The first is that he gave them the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit came and he guides and he empowers them to build the very first church in the book of Acts. And then the second thing that these uh, apostles and disciples had was they had a rock-solid conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead, They had a rock-solid conviction, and that conviction sustained them through every single obstacle and every single opposition. And when we are confronted with questions, when they were confronted with those hard questions that they could not answer, or they got into arguments with people that they could not win, their response was always, yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead. Have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody, someone who was super, super smart, smarter than you were, and you felt there was no way for you to win that argument? You ever been in that place? There was no way for you to win even if you knew the other person was wrong. You ever been in that place before? Like, I'm the one that's right. I know I am, but there's no way I'm winning, right? Well, Peter got into one of those arguments back in Acts chapter 4, if you guys remember. 
And he gets into this argument with the religious leaders and he's like, right, I I get that you're smarter than me. I get that you have questions that I don't know the answers to, but here's the thing. We knew this guy, Jesus. We knew that he was dead. We saw him be removed from the cross and placed in a tomb, and we also saw him alive after the fact. He resurrected. We know it. So no offense to your massive education. No offense to your intellect, but I have, if I had to choose between your education and his return from the dead, I would go with his return from the dead every single time. And if Jesus was truly raised from the dead, should that not change how we approach questions that people bring to us? I mean, oftentimes... I have talked with people throughout my years in ministry that have objections about Christianity. And I often say to those people, what if Jesus came back right now? What if he came back right now and he was standing here with us and he said, hey, I'm not going to answer that question for you right now. There, there is an answer but I'm not going to give it to you right now. Would you suspend your doubts until he could explain it to you? And usually, not always, but usually the person says to me, yes. To which I will then reply back to them, then the problem is not in your questions. The problem is your lack of certainty that Jesus was resurrected. That's what the problem really is. I believe that there is more sufficient proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you are a note taker, I want you to write this down. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. That's all it is. And when the disciples and the apostles were faced with obstacles that they could not overcome, when Rome put their leaders in prison... And if you study out church history, you come to find that Christians were even thrown into the Colosseum for their families to be eaten alive by lions. When that was happening to the Christian, the early church, when they had no money, they said, but yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and he's going to make this work. I don't know how, but he's going he's to make it happen. And so church... Christian believer in here this morning, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what kind of confidence should we have in our mission? I mean, Acts is this beautiful story, beautiful story of how an early church community filled with the Holy Spirit and sure of the resurrection spread the gospel around the entire planet. And along the way, the author Luke he stops to tell us this specific story about something that happened to the church so that we can learn from this example. And that's what brings us to Acts 15. Now, the church is about to encounter a problem that could have had significant impact. It could have derailed the church had they not handled it appropriately. And there was a very subtle danger that we're going to see here in the text. Now, I'm going to just be really honest with you. Uh, a lot of pastors do not preach on this specific chapter of Acts because it, it's about a theological debate. And those can often bore people. 
theological debates can bore people. I, I get that and I understand. I do not find theological debates boring. I don't. But this specific passage of Scripture is going to answer some really important questions. Questions like, what role should politics play in the church? And all of God's people gasped. (gasps) Right? How should we handle drinking alcohol? What do we do if someone in our small group uh, disagrees or has a different viewpoint than I do? How do we handle that situation? I mean, some of you may be thinking this passage deals with all of that, and the answer is yes. This passage deals with all of that, and I'm going to show you at the end, but I want to unpack the story first. So I want you to look at verse number 1, Acts 15, and here we go. It says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I want us to hold tight for a moment. Because a lot of the first Christians in the Bible were Jewish men and women. These Jews had been raised on Old Testament law. And one of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. It was a God-given sign that separated the people of God from the world. That's why it was there. And so a lot of these new Christians, Jewish Christians are teaching, if you're really going to be a child of God, then you have to be circumcised. And what this meant is that the new members class of the early church consisted mostly of women and children. The men didn't go. Now I want us to pick up in verse number two and it says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, I want you to keep in mind here, this was a ridiculously long trip for Paul and Barnabas. It's right at the middle of Paul's successful missionary and writing career. I mean, he's establishing churches and he's writing books that we still use and study from today over 2,000 years later. And in the midst of all of this, Paul decides to walk back to Jerusalem. Why? Because whatever is being discussed is so important that he's willing to stop what he's doing to go all the way back to discuss it. I want you to pick up with me now in verse number 6. Verse number 6. It says, And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Stop right there. There were 613 Jewish laws that were required to be memorized. 613. And circumcision was just one of them. That means there are 612 other laws. And Peter's standing here saying, I don't know about you guys, but I've never felt like I've been able to keep all of those laws and I was born a Jew. I haven't been able to do it. He's like, I I could hardly keep them straight. 
How far am I allowed to walk on the Sabbath day? Are we allowed to eat llama meat? Or what about turkey bacon? Are we allowed to do that? Or what about yoga pants? Is, is, is that really a forbidden fabric? Or is it just in poor taste because I'm a guy? No matter how hard Peter tried, he never felt like he was measuring up to keeping the full amount of God's law. And if Peter could barely keep those laws, Peter, the, the, the very rock that God used to help start the church, if Peter could never do it and he was born Jewish, then why project that burden onto the Gentiles? Now I want us to pick up in verse number 11. Because he says, And when the crowd saw that Paul had uh, saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and saying, and Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. I apologize. But, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. In verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now I want us to stop there. And as your pastor, I'm going to beg of you this morning. I'm going to beg that we engrave that last phrase that we read into the very cornerstone of our church. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. Any obstacle, church... I want to just please listen to me this morning. Any obstacle that we can eliminate, we should. Even preferences for things that I really like or that I, as your pastor, am comfortable with. I think about this all the time as I'm leading you. I never, ever, ever want to make it difficult for people unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because we have made up some list of accomplishments that they needed to have in order to be a part of the family of God. I don't ever want us to be a church that is full of cliques that are impossible to penetrate. And at the same time, I don't want us to be a church that make it difficult because we've presented this artificial facade of righteousness that we feel that they have to live up to in order for them to be included. You know, sometimes Christians project this sanitized, perfect life walking hand in hand with our big Bibles and and this gleam in our teeth and it's just untrue. 
I don't want outside people in this community uh, to, to look at us and think, well, we can't belong there because our life is messed up. I don't want to make it difficult for our guests to be welcomed into our church family so that they can hear how God has been at work here. I don't want to make it difficult for people turning to God because we've mocked condescendingly those people on the outside. And I, I just want to tell you this. I don't want to make it difficult for the individual that is struggling with same-sex attraction. The one who's looking for the reason for the God-sized hole that is inside of them. I don't want to make it difficult for them because we have somehow stigmatized their sin as though it is worse than the sins of each one of us sitting in this room. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter what it is. I believe that we need to be 100% standing for truth. And this church does not agree that homosexuality is right. We believe that it is a sin. It's the same as adultery, the same as being an alcoholic or addicted to pornography or drugs. It's all sin. It is all sin. We will love and welcome you here at this church, but we love you enough for you to not stay where you're at. Church, I don't want to make it difficult for people because we have somehow mixed secondary political positions with the gospel message. Are you picking up what I'm laying down, church? Uh, we have a message that is life and death. And no secondary message, no matter how important, should get in the way of the gospel message. Now I want you to pick up with me in verse number 20. Look at what Luke writes. He says, but, but, well actually, you know what? Let's read 19 again. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now you read that, and you might be saying, that list kind of seems random. Sexual immorality, don't deal with strangled animals. What on earth is Luke even talking about? Well, sexual immorality was... Uh, in the pagan world, it was a commonly accepted practice. And so Luke is saying that the moral law of God does not change. And so you need to heed it. You need to follow it. You need to follow through with what God's word tells us to do. And you say, well, why only mention those few things? What about lying? What about stealing? What about murder? Luke was not saying that stealing and, and murder were now open season. He's just saying that the practices that he specifically mentioned were the most common place in this area in this time. And so what's with the not eating meat from strangled animals? 
or from blood or food that's been polluted by idols. Well, those things were really offensive to the Jews. All of them were. In fact, it would have caused fellowship problems. And that's why Luke is referring to the law of being read and all of the Jews being raised that certain way. He's saying, don't make it difficult for your fellow brother and sister. They have a cultural sensitivity. Be grace-filled towards them. Now I want you to pick up with me and we're going to read this last chunk. Start in verse 22. And then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that, same, that some people have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now we're going to stop there for today. Now I want to talk to us this morning about several drifts that this text warns us to avoid as Christians. I mean, every, every single church and every Christian will face these drifts, the same thing that was faced by the early church. And the first drift I want to give to you this morning is the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. I'm going to say it again. The drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Unfortunately, unfortunately, every church has a tendency to do this. Every single church. When a church gets started, we become so focused on reaching people on the outside and then we eventually get established. And when we get established, we all here in the church have needs And then it becomes so easy to start focusing inwardly instead of being both inward and outward focused. Now, if I could just be really super honest with you this morning, this is a really hard one for me. This is a hard one because as many of you know, especially those who know me well, I have my own preferences. And I, I, at the same time, of having my own preferences, I also want to make people happy too. I've told the church in the past that I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I love when people approve of the things that I say and do. And to be 100% honest with you this morning, you who are sitting here and, and the ones who are normally here that are out sick or recovering from surgeries, 
The ones who are sitting here, the ones that are listening online, you here are the ones that write the letters of complaint or have conversations of complaint. The people who don't come are not the ones that are complaining about the things that are said and done from this pulpit. And so it's easy for me to attempt to re-engineer the church to please you or to please myself. But we ought not to make it hard for people outside of here who are attempting to get right with God. It's so sad from a pastor's perspective. It is so sad to walk into a church that is stuck into its old traditions. It's so sad to walk into a church that is stuck entirely in the past. It's so sad to go in and to sit with people and I hear comments that are like, oh, well, this pastor used to say this and this pastor used to do this like this and our worship team used to sing it like this and we used to do it in this key and we used to have less drums and more electric guitar and more this and and we used to have a tambourine on stage and we used to have the walls black and we used to have the carpet yellow and It's so easy for people to run to the mentality of the past. Groups of people that have been sitting in the same exact seat since the Revolutionary War. And they won't change even though they can see that they're not reaching other people. And it's so sad. I never, ever, ever want to be a church that loves our tradition more than we love the lost people. I never, ever, ever want to be a church that loves the past and the way things that old pastors used to do certain things more than we love lost people. This church in the nearly three years that I have been here has had to walk through some of its very own crossroads just like right here in this chapter that we're reading. Our Jerusalem council, so to speak, has had to make some really hard decisions for the betterment of our vision and mission right here in Ionia and beyond. And the road does not end, church. The road doesn't end. There are more decisions on the table currently, right now. And some of those decisions may not be popular to every person sitting in this room. But we have to remember that every decision that we choose is to advance the mission and the kingdom of God rather than preserve something from the past or a tradition. Every decision. And I say this with the utmost love and respect of every person here, not here, watching online or listen later. The early church did not make hard decisions so that we could be selfish right now. And so a drift from a passion for outsiders to to pacifying insiders, it leads to preserving traditions and the past, and it stops the advancement of the gospel. Which then leads me to the second drift, and that's the drift from grace to law. The drift from grace to law. Do you know the ones in the text that we're calling out for circumcision were the ones that had already been saved? They were saved Uh, They they believed that they were saved by putting faith in Christ. But then as soon as they were saved, they started to drift back into a rules-based relationship with God. 
And that's what always happens. You know, we, we constantly drift from a balance of grace and law back to just only law. And Martin Luther, one of the greatest theologians of the Reformation, said the reason why we do this, we, we drift from grace and law balanced back to law only because we are hardwired that way. It's like a car being severely out of alignment. You may not recognize it at first, but then it starts to pull and it starts to pull harder. And then in turn, what happens? You start to lose tires and other things start to happen in your car because you've gone and gone and gone so far to one direction instead of remaining balanced. But for our purposes here, right now, today, our list probably looks a little bit different. I honestly don't know in the nearly three years that I've been here that there's ever been an argument about circumcision in our church. I, I really don't. It's probably not a big deal to us, but we have our own lists, don't we? Our, our lists of things where we say, if, if you do these things, then you'll be right with God. If you do these things, that you'll show that you're a good Christian. And they're never bad things, right? It's like involvement in ministry. You should, you should probably serve, right? Uh, well, what about doing a quiet time, spending, spending time alone with, with the Lord, right? That, that's a good thing. And all God's people said, wow, church, spending time alone with the Lord is a good thing. Amen. That's better. That's better. Now, we, we, we add to that list, like, are you participating in a small group? Or how many people did you share the gospel with this week? Do you have a perfect family? Are your children always obedient when you leave your home? Right? How much did you give this week? Now, all of those things are good, but those things end up becoming the measure of our spiritual life. And they end up becoming the measure by which we evaluate everybody else around us too. Not only does that make us lose the gospel in our own life, it makes it difficult for other people to come to know God. The, the gospel, church, is that you and I were purified the very moment we put faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in what we were able to do, but in what Jesus already did. Do you guys remember the very last words of Jesus on the cross? As he's hanging there, what did he say? It is finished. Not go clean yourself up. It is finished. And that means that at any moment, you can be fully right with God. No matter how lost you are, it can be finished for you too. But then after that drift from grace to law, we begin to see the third drift, and that is a drift from a focus on internal transformation to an external conformity. Do you know that the gospel's focus is on transforming the heart of man? Jesus said that the essence of the law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as your as yourself. And everything else was an outworking of those two greatest commandments. Do you know that the Bible 
from Genesis to Revelation helps us to see what love looks like. And love scattered through every single page of God's word looks like truth, purity, and justice. That's what it looks like. And at the the core is a heart that loved God and loves God first. And that heart is produced by a faith in Jesus Christ and sanctification through the Holy Spirit. That's where that heart comes from. And the people that lose the focus on the gospel, they replace the focus on inward transformation with an emphasis on something outward that looks like conforming to something else. And in the end, church, an outward conformity does more detriment to the individual. In the Christian circles, in in biblical counseling, we call that outward conformity behavior modification. That's what we call that. And behavior modification, though seemingly aligned with Christian ideals and morality and and righteousness, it presents harmful effects when genuine heart change is absent from the individual. And in the context of what we are talking about today, and in the context of our faith, authentic transformation It emanates from a deep personal relationship with God and a sincere change of heart. You know, when our focus, when our focus shifts primarily from modifying outward actions without addressing the inner spiritual condition, the sequence begins to arise in our life. When we walk out behavior modification. It tends to lead to a very shallow and superficial understanding of faith. That's what happens. When we focus solely on an outward action and neglect an internal transformation, it inadvertently encourages you and I to have a facade of righteousness without ever truly addressing the condition inside. The very true heart condition. I I believe my wife has shared this before. Christianity and, and being sanctified is like having heart surgery done by God himself. Removing all of the bad. Church, when we when we focus actually before I say this, how many of you have ever heard the phrase fake it till you make it? Okay, that is an absolute lie. That's a lie right from the very pit of hell itself. Faking it till you make it leads to hypocrisy. Because individuals are presenting a false image of piety and morality while harboring a different motive and attitude inside. And we become overly focused on rigid adherence to rules and traditions and and religious rituals. And that legalism causes bondage and it hinders our understanding of genuine spiritual freedom. And when behavior becomes the primary focus for us, we develop a judgmental attitude towards others based upon their actions. And that leads us to a lack of empathy. That leads us to a lack of understanding, a lack of grace. And we begin to distance ourselves from believers that are demonstrating Christ-like love and, and compassion. We, we have to understand 
that a genuine heart change promotes authenticity and transparency. And, and the misalignment causes individuals to lose sight of the very central message of the gospel. Behavior modification church will never put you in right standing with God or in right standing with anybody else here on this earth. In fact, it makes it look like you're doing the right thing when you're only going to slip back into your own ways in just a few short weeks. And when that happens, a whole host of things become laws that determine whether or not you're spiritual or not. And in this text, it was circumcision. It was circumcision here. And for us, our list consists of which political party that we fall in. Or whether or not we should drink alcohol. Or whether or not we should eat certain types of food. Or whether or not Christians should have tattoos and piercings. Or whether or not fill in the blank. And at the end of Peter's sermon... James, the the very brother of Jesus, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, makes this final judgment. And for our context today, he says, for way too long, the church has been more concerned with what's in people's refrigerators more than what's in their heart. Do you know the very core of the message of the gospel is not that Jesus is cool. The very core of the message of the gospel is not that Jesus is a religious guru with some sort of innovative idea about God that people need to hear. The very message of the gospel is that Jesus was God in the flesh and and that his death was not some unfortunate accident or some inspiring act of martyrdom. It was a part of a sovereign plan to save humanity. That's what it was. Jesus died willingly as a substitute for our sins. And then he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to show that he had successfully paid for sin. Jesus did rise from the dead. And I want you to know that the evidence is incontrovertible that he rose from the dead. And that should be the very Christian hope. That's why I believe that every single Sunday that we gather should be Easter Sunday. Every single Sunday should be Easter Sunday. Nowhere in the text did we ever see that the church leader gave a pass on sin. In fact, we know from Scripture that there are very clear boundaries that the church must never capitulate to the culture. Never. But not everyone has your same preferences. Amen? Not everyone has your same political position. Amen? And so we have to remember the words, for me, some of the greatest words penned by a theologian, a theological giant of yesteryear, St. Augustine. And he wrote this to the church saying that the church should, should live in light of this. In essentials unity and non-essentials liberty but in all things charity. In essentials unity and non-essentials liberty but in all things charity. That's why the Lord gave to us 
chapters like Romans 14 and Romans 15 and so many other great passages that help us navigate the very choppy water of controversy and they help the believer avoid total disaster. Now, we're going to close this morning and I'm going to give us three statements and they're going to hit the screen. And after each statement, I'm going to briefly explain what I mean because I do not want someone to walk out of here um, thinking something that they shouldn't. I want to give us these statements and then I'm going to give us a couple of practices to help the believer uh, avoid disaster in this life. But I want you to write these three down. The first one is that anything God condemns is sin. Anything that God condemns. That statement encapsulates the belief that our actions and our thoughts and our behaviors that oppose God in any way, shape, or form are sinful. I mean, God's condemnation should be viewed as a very clear indicator of moral wrongdoing and transgression against God's laws and principles and commandments. So that means us. If you're in here this morning and your life has been changed by God and you are one of God's children, we have to avoid actions and behaviors that are in opposition to God's decree. And if not, then we cannot maintain a right standing in God's eyes if we do not follow God's word. Amen? The second is anything God condones is safe. Anything God condones is safe. Pastor, what does that mean? If God approves of it, if God's word endorses it or supports it, then it is safe. Meaning it's morally acceptable and it is beneficial for your life. I mean, God's approval tells us that there will be a godly or a righteous outcome, whether in terms of spiritual well-being, moral uprightness, or even physical safety. And this last one in just a second. Before you jump to any conclusions on this last statement, let me explain. The last statement is that anything God is silent on is a choice. Now, before you walk out of here saying, well, the pastor said I could go drink and smoke marijuana and go to the strip club, that's not what I said at all. (laughs) I want you to know In the Bible, when there is no specific guidance or directive from God on a particular matter, we have the freedom to make choices based upon the word of God and our discernment and conviction from the Holy Spirit. Silence from God in the Bible never implies approval or disapproval, but rather allows the personal discretion within the bounds or the boundaries of God's truth. Now, before you start who in and hurrahing inside. There is a direct imperative that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's not going to come to the screen. But Paul wrote to the church and he said that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build you up. Paul was telling the believer that there is an importance in considering the broader implications and outcomes of our choices, even if those choices are technically allowed or permissible. 
Paul encouraged every single believer to consider not only their rights and their freedoms, but also the impact of their actions on themselves and the people in their circle of influence. It emphasizes to us that making choices should align with wisdom and the well-being of all, even in areas where there may not be explicit instruction to us. And so before you walk out of here and you start drinking alcohol, before you walk out of here and light that joint, before you walk out of here and have a political debate with somebody else, you must consider whether or not your actions are truly beneficial and constructive for our, ourself and for the people around us that may be uh, impacted or affected. Because we are called to maintain healthy relationships and build up the body in unity under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ, not under my preferences. And if you want to maintain healthy relationships and build unity and be a mature believer, there are four practices that every single one of us should put into place every single day and they're not going to hit the screen for you. So if you want them, you're going to have to write them down. And that first practice is that you and I have to start learning to value people over preferences. We have to. Because your denomination or, or your carpet color choice or your wall paint color choice does not give you greater access to heaven. And we have to make sure that we love, that we do not love our traditions or that we do not love our, our past or our preference more than we love Christ and other people. The second practice is that we need to sit, seek to build people up, not to tear them down. Because God has not called you nor I to become the fourth member of the Trinity. That's his job. That is his job. The third practice is to stop comparing our versions of Christianity. We have to. The Christian life is about comp completing the race, not competing and comparing whose version of Christianity is better. I've sat in a lot of theological debates and circles and been in a lot of colleges and heard a lot of really good godly people disagree on a great number of issues and that did not mean that one of them was better than another. And the last practice is the most difficult. But we need to rush to give people grace. We need to rush to give people grace. I mean, that's the very overarching theme of the book of Acts. Don't force your preferences upon other people and give people the same exact thing that you receive from Jesus moment by moment, every single day, grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, your sovereignty and, and your grace in our lives. And as we take a step back, God, we, we thank you for the incredible story of the early church that we see in the book of Acts. How you took ordinary, everyday people and you filled them with the Holy Spirit and they spread the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And then as we read this, Lord, we... We cannot help but recognize that like them, you have entrusted us with the same mission to continue to reach people. And so God, we confess this morning and I, I believe I speak on behalf of, of everyone here. God, we confess that sometimes we drift away from your grace. We focus 
on, on outward appearances and, and we follow the man-made rules. We push our preferences on other people. And so God, I, I ask right now that you would forgive each one of us. That you would forgive us for the, the, the times that we have valued traditions and, and preferences over your transforming grace in the life of somebody else. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to constantly realign our heart with your truth. I pray specifically for our church and for the, the universal church as a whole. I pray that there would be a priority on reaching people outside of our walls. That we would have a priority on showing mercy and, and grace and, and love to lost and hurting people. I pray that we would never make it difficult for anyone to come because we've imposed unnecessary rules or, or, or regulations or traditions upon somebody. So Lord, as we, as we read your word and we stutter, study it, I, I just ask that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom to navigate the challenges of the very time and culture that we live. To navigate the, the political differences and, and the preferences and, and the moral questions. That we would actually live out what Augustine called the church to do in all things essential that we would be united and if it's non-essential, God, that we would give liberty to the people uh, around us. But in everything, love would be present. I ask that our lives would be a testimony to your resurrection. That you would give us confidence in the mission that you've laid out for us. For the, the possible decisions and changes ahead of us, God, that we would want to uh, share the gospel with the world around us. We thank you, God, for who you are, for loving us and, and giving us strength for each day. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.